0: Hello and welcome back to the God's Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. I'm back with Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States for another look at the Book of Revelation. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Now, today we meet a very dodgy dame, indeed, the Whore of Babylon. And uh, yes, we're up to Chapter 17, and there's a lot of detail in here, Alistair. Uh, Where does Chapter 17 fit into the structure of the Book of Revelation as a whole?
1: So if we've gone through the cycles of seven, um, we've finished the seals, we've finished the trumpets, and we've just finished the bowls. And so it is the final act of the book of Revelation, um, after they have the great battle and um, the establishment of the Heavenly city, all these sorts of things flow out in many respects from the vision at, um, of chapter 17.
0: Now, how do the events of this chapter of Revelation interact with those in the book of Ezekiel?
1: Yeah. So to this point, we've seen several connections with Ezekiel. We've seen, for instance, the connections with possible connections with Armageddon, um, the battle of Gog and Magog. We've seen connections with the final vision at various points, but here it becomes a lot more obvious. The waters that flow out, we'll see towards the end. We have the great battle. We have the establishment of the temple and the city. Um, And here, it seems to me, there are, again, ways in which the story of Ezekiel is in the background, background. The final chapters very much scan with the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Peter Lightheart has discussed this in some detail. And Mm. so um, part of the background here is even within the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 16, and Israel is the unfaithful
0: bride of the Lord. And so I think that would be part of the background. How does the woman here relate to the woman in Zechariah chapter 5? Zechariah
1: chapter 5 is one of the night visions of Zechariah. And in that vision, something connected with uncleanness is removed from the land. It seems to me that it's an image of a sort of parody of the Ark of the Covenant. And so you have a woman in a basket described as wickedness with storks, with women with storks' wings who take the basket out of the land to the land of Shinar. And so a number of connections are worth noting there. The woman connected with wickedness, the sort of false, this is a false Ark of the Covenant. It's placed in the land of Shinar, connected with Babylon. Babylon. And there, it's removed from the the realm of the land. It's a polluted object, and so the parodic ark of the covenant removed by unclean birds, playing the role of the cherubim, the leaden cover instead of the golden ark of the covenant, covenant with the uh, mercy seat above it, and the the woman here, I think, is is
0: playing with all of that imagery. Now, who okay, who who is the woman then, and what does she represent?
1: Yes, um, it's a fairly vexed question. It seems to me that the woman represents Israel, and maybe more particularly Jerusalem, but um, Israel as as a religious power. Israel as the bride of the Lord as well. So she's riding upon the beast. She is not, it seems to me, identified with the beast. She is associated very closely with the beast to the point of riding upon it but she is not um she is not the same entity as the beast indeed later on in the chapter the beast will turn upon her uh, she's described as drinking the blood of the saints she's clothed in purple and scarlet and precious gold that with gold precious stones jewels pearls etc And she is associated also with sexual immorality. Now we've had images of women associated with sexual immorality earlier in the book. Think of Jezebel within within the letters to the churches. We might also think about the way that the blood of the saints particularly comes upon Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem that kills the prophets in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 23. Jerusalem is the great persecuting city a, A prophet should not die outside of Jerusalem. And so the fact that this woman is drinking the blood of the saints suggests that the association with Jerusalem is not an unreasonable one to make. The fact that she's arrayed in purple and scarlet might make us think back to the description of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16. She has a ring in her nose, clothed with gold and silver, clothed with fine linen, silk and cloth, is dressed with purple and scarlet and all these sorts of things that set her apart. But she plays the harlot. She has relations with idols and false deities, with um, pagan nations. And although she is set above all the other nations, her renown goes forth among all the nations and she's distinguished. She is going to be struck down. She's going to be made naked. And the lovers that once consorted with her are going to come against her and destroy her and strip her. And so it's the same sort of thing happening here. It seems to me that it's quite reasonable to regard the woman here as Jerusalem and Israel as it has played the harlot with other powers and um, other gods.
0: Yeah, so once again, we see John picking up all the imagery running right throughout the whole Old Testament. Mm, Absolutely. Now, why though is Jerusalem depicted as Babylon? Is there a connection back to the Book of Daniel going on here too?
1: Yes, Babylon is the archetypal, in many ways, rebellious empire. We've already seen the imagery of um, Sodom and Egypt applied to the opposing force here, particularly Jerusalem. And again, the great city in which the two witnesses are killed, that's associated with Sodom and Egypt, the city in which our Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem. We might think also of the allusion to Jericho with the blowing of seven trumpets and the harlot. Um, Again, the harlot imagery might be picking up on Jericho here. This is an unredeemed Rahab associated with the city. So there are ways in which... Other cities that are archetypal sites of judgment. Sodom, of course, the great city of the plain that's judged as a symbol of the the land's judgment. Egypt, associated with the archetypal judgment of the plagues, has been alluded to at several points. Um, Jericho is the archetypal city of the land that is defeated in the conquest. And Babylon is the opposing empire and kingdom. Babel, of course is in the backdrop of the call of Abraham. Abraham is called in chapter 12 of Genesis. In chapter 11, the nations are judged after their sin at Babel. So Babel has an archetypal significance as the sort of world empire, the alternative to the Lord's kingdom. And that contrast is really explored, as you noted in the book of Daniel. You have a series of images that look back to the great tower of Babel and its attempt to form a sort of world empire that had pretensions to the divine power itself. So in chapter two, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar with the four-part empire image. And then in chapter three, the great golden statue to which all parties have to bow. And then in chapter four, the great tree that is cut down, again, a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar and his imperial power. So in all of these ways, it seems that Babylon has an archetypal force that is picked up on in various places in scripture. Imagery that's used concerning the defeat of Babylon and judgment upon it in its historical existence is applied to the destruction of Jerusalem in various parts of the prophets, so it seems to me that this is fairly established imagery. It's something that's used elsewhere. It's applied to Jerusalem within Jesus' teaching, for instance. Um, the prophets and their uses of um, imagery and language is applied to the events of AD. So it seems to me that this is the, the context within which um, John is operating.
0: Yes, now I want to come on and talk about the significance of the woman's apparel and the gemstones and all that in a minute. But before we do that, can I ask you, please, what's the significance of the fact that the woman is seated on many waters? We've seen that the waters and the sea are highly significant in Revelation. What's going on here? Yes, being situated upon many
1: waters. Again, the waters are connected with the Gentiles. And many waters, This this is not just a singular body of water. Think back to the ways that we've seen distinctions between bodies of water on day two and three of the seal cycle, for instance, the land waters and the sea waters. There are also divisions between sea waters. We talk about many different oceans. And here, again, we might be dealing with something along those lines. There are many different sea waters, the various nations and powers of the Gentiles, the various empires. This is a woman that has. Influence and a part in all these sorts of r- different realms. Think again of the diaspora that's spread about throughout the empire. And this is a woman who holds influence and sway over people within this wider realm, not just within the center of Rome or within the diaspora, but um, in a number of
0: different regions. Mm. Now, you've already touched on this, I know, but I, I wonder what the significance, is, the significance is of the color of the woman's apparel and the gemstones? Well, her being scarlet, there are other entities
1: that are scarlet, not least the dragon. And so the woman and the scarlet beast have the same colour. There's a sort of unmasking of their similarity to the great dragon. So that scarlet aspect might connect to that. Also, scarlet and purple would be colours associated with priestly office, kingly office as well. It might be some reference to the status enjoyed by this woman here.
0: Is there a connection, Alisa, back to the tabernacle furnishings and the colours, and even perhaps to the dress of the high priest?
1: Perhaps. In Exodus chapter 28, the clothing of the high priest is connected with the um, clothing of the tabernacle, as it were. Or we might think about the high priest as a sort of living tent and so the body of the high priest and the body of the tabernacle are symbolically associated and even mapped onto each other in various ways holy to the lord as the great blossom on his forehead might be connected with the uh, that plate on his forehead might be connected with the ark of the covenant and the most holy place or perhaps the um the square that he has on his chest again might connect with the most holy place. It seems that these parallels um, are also involved in the significance of certain colors. Now, as we go through the opening chapters of Numbers, certain colors had to be used for certain objects in the coverings when the tabernacle was being transported. Likewise, there were um, certain curtains, certain colors that were used in the construction of the tabernacle, various parts. And so the colours of the garments of the high priest, the colours of the curtains and various other parts of the tent of the tabernacle um, can all be connected in various ways, as can the covers over the sacred items of the tabernacle as they are moved on the journeys. Mm. What's the cup she holds? What's the significance of the cup? In places like the Book of Jeremiah, there are descriptions of a cup of judgment that's passed around the nations that's um, going to cause the nations to reel, finally it will come to the hands of Babylon itself and it will drink and it will tartar. Now, that cup of judgment is a cup that's recurring here. We might think of the cup of judgment that Christ drinks in his death. We might also think about the bitter cup that's drunk by the woman who's suspected of adultery in Numbers chapter 5 in the test of jealousy. This is a great test of jealousy. This is the unfaithful bride. This is Jerusalem who has killed the prophets that have been sent to her. And now the time has come for her test of jealousy. The cup is also mingled with the blood of the saints. The blood of the saints is, of course, connected with the, the judgment that comes down. The blood of the saints calls from beneath the altar, The blood of the saints is mingled with the bowls that are poured out and the waters have been turned to blood. Now the blood that is now the drink of the harlot is going to be one that brings judgment. She has been killing the saints, drinking up their blood in that sense. And now their blood is going to be a source of bitter
0: poison that's going to destroy her. I'm reminded a bit as we talk of the end of Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet with the poison in the cup. Uh, is Solomon involved in a parody Eucharist?
1: We can see it that way in First Corinthians chapter 11. We drink a cup of blessing, but that cup of blessing can be a cause of judgment if it is a, if it is partaken of in an unworthy fashion. It is a test. There is a sort of test of jealousy, but that test involves a memorial uh, offering in um numbers chapter 5 there is a sort of memorial offering character to what we celebrate in the lord's supper we offer bread and wine as memorial of christ's death we're bringing to mind christ's death so that we would be blessed and judged on the basis of it now if we partake partake in an unworthy fashion there is a way in which we're bringing that judgment upon ourselves and so this celebration as it were of the drinking of the blood of the saints. Just as Jerusalem drank the blood of our Lord, it's bringing judgment upon herself, and it is a sort of test of jealousy. Mm. And false Eucharist.
0: Yes. Now, we better deal with the scarlet beast and all the imagery. Why is the woman seated You probably already referred to this. I think you did. But why is the woman seated on a scarlet beast, and who or what is the scarlet beast? She's on many waters,
1: and she is connected with this scarlet beast which it seems to me is the sea beast that we've seen earlier on and so the sea beast is the sort of mini me of the great dragon here he's described as scarlet later he will turn upon the woman he is not the same thing as the woman the scarlet beast is it seems to me rome and rome and its power is something that jerusalem is now resting upon
0: Mm. Uh, To what extent, I wonder, is this beast, the sea beast, a composite of all the previous beasts in Revelation?
1: Well, we can also see it as a composite of all the beasts in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. So there are a series of beasts, um, one of which has three heads or four heads. And so add those up together you've got seven heads and then you've got the ten horns of the final beast so it seems to be a composite it also as we've noted earlier that sea beast has features of each of the land beasts or each of the sea beasts described by daniel so it's a composite sort of hybrid some
0: chimera that's just a horrific nightmare beast Lots of beasts. Yes, we can't get our beasts mixed up. Uh, To what extent is a scarlet beast a parody of the Trinity, I wonder? Well, if we go back to chapters 12 and 13, there is a
1: sort of triune character to the beast. The beast is, first of all, seen in the dragon. The dragon brings forth the sea beast and the sea beast brings forth the, the land beast. There is a sort of order of worship established around these a false church. And in all of these ways, the dragon is revealed through the work of the sea beast. And we can think about the way that the character of Michael is set over against the um, sea beast and the sort of worship of the sea beast set over against those with the um, mark on their forehead. So there is a sort of parodic Trinity and a parodic church in the figure of the sea beast, the dragon, and the land beast, or the false prophet.
0: Now, uh, what's the significance of the ten horns on the beast, and who or what do they represent? The ten horns are described earlier
1: on in chapter 13, verse 1. The beast rising out of the sea is described as having ten heads and ten horns, ten diadems on its horns, and the blasphemous names on its head. heads. We might think about the blasphemous names as something a sort of parody of the true name upon the forehead that's worn by the high priest the 10 horns might also be connected with the i mean they do seem to be kingly powers or and some sort of um their heads are kings or mountains and then the 10s are kings who will be established
0: Mm. Uh, is it any coincidence that there were 10? If you count Julius Caesar as an emperor, although technically he wasn't, and go to Emperor Vespasian, who I think was the, the dude in charge at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, wasn't he? That's 10 emperors in effect. Would that fit the, the picture? S-
1: some have said the specific kings that are associated um, with the horns. And then there are maybe iterations of the kingdom so it's kingdoms and kings so there are different ways that we could understand this a king is not necessarily an individual it might be a king as representing a kingdom
0: Mm.
1: Um, so there are various ways maybe the ten horns or the ten provinces of rome Oh, okay. Yep. There are various ways that we could read these.
0: Yep, it would all fit, wouldn't it? Now, uh, how then does Rome make war against Jesus and the saints during this period? We're, we're talking about the period 30 to 70 AD, and particularly in the 60s, aren't we? How did Rome make war against Jesus and the saints?
1: In the book of Acts, there seems to be a sort of counter-missionary movement where everywhere that Paul and the other uh, missionaries go, there's a shadow mission sent by Jewish leaders, that seeks to stir up persecution from the Romans against this new missionary movement. And so it's very much instigated by um, the Jewish forces in Jerusalem, this harlot figure, and it's using the power of the beast against the church. And so that would seem to be the chief form of persecution that takes place. That form of persecution becomes more direct, from the beast itself under the Neronic persecution. But there is this instigation by the power of the, um, the scarlet woman.
0: Mm, we should say that in the 60s under Nero, that was with the period when the Christians were thrown to the lions, wasn't it? And also burnt... If I remember rightly from my uh, classical studies, didn't Nero have a kind of a kind of fire? Didn't he set people on fire and walk past them or something in a, in a procession? I can't, something so like that. To be tortures. Yeah. Yes, as to be tortures. That's right. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. Particularly horrific. Now, how is the woman's destruction then connected here with the Old Testament sacrificial system?
1: Yes. Um, again... It's worth remembering what's going on. Get a sense of the bigger picture. This is the end of the old covenant order, symbolically represented. And so there's the destruction of this old power, this old um, central authority of Jerusalem and its temple, represented as the false bride. And so it's going to be a, a destruction of that. She's represented in ways that might Recall the high priest and its garments. She's drinking something that could be seen as a sort of test of jealousy, or it might also be seen as connected with this is the object, these are the objects of the temple. Think back to maybe places like Daniel chapter five and the way that there is again drinking from the temple vessels in a way that brings down the kingdom of Babylon. This is something similar. She's drinking from a temple vessel. She's drinking the blood of the saints. She's dressed in um, the garments of a high priest in certain ways. And she's engaged in a perversion of all of these things.
0: Yeah. Final question, Alice, Uh, And I know we dealt with this on the last podcast, but how and when did Rome then destroy Jerusalem? When did these things come to pass in your view? Yes,
1: this, it seems to me, is referring to the period of AD 70. It's the end of the old covenant order. This is the conclusion of the power of Jerusalem covenantally, and its its temple is the center. Now, that was brought to a temporary halt, of course, with the Babylonian captivity, but this is the more final end to it. And so this is the start of the new covenant order after a period of overlap from around AD 30 to AD 70. And so that destruction is a reconfiguration of the world. There's a reconfiguration in the heavens, and now there's a reconfiguration on the earth. And it seems to me that we might also connect some of this back to other images that we have in scripture. For instance, in Revelation chapter 12, the woman flees from the dragon. And it seems to me that we might maybe connect this to that woman being perverted. And so this is the woman who's gone into the wilderness, fleeing from the dragon, a woman who has been perverted in various ways. We might connect it with Rahab. Rahab who is connected with the city of Jericho that is brought down with the blowing of seven trumpets. She's the harlot connected with that city that's to be judged within the land. She is rescued. Later on, people will be called from the harlot city, and it seems to form the bride. We might also note the way that um, there are features of this text that Warren Gage has argued draw our attention back to another image in the Johannine literature, which is John chapter four, where you have, again, a woman who is seated upon the waters, a woman who is cagey about her marital status. This is a woman who won't admit that she's a widow. And then she's a woman who has a shady character. Um, And then there are also um, interesting details that are in common. So for instance, you have had five husbands. The man that you're with is not your husband. And here we have there are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has has not yet come. So There is a similarity between these two images. In chapter four of John, that woman is brought to Christ. Christ um, stays for a little while, and the woman marvels, or the people marvel. Here, John marvels, and there seems to be a way in which there is a juxtaposition between this false harlot and the woman who's redeemed in um, John chapter four. And so I think all of this helps us to understand part of the greater covenant imagery of what's taking place. This is a woman who is perverted, but also a woman who, from whom there can be redemption.
0: Mm, fascinating stuff. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. Thank you so much. Uh, we were looking at Revelation chapter 17. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, Once again, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit GodStoryPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's GodStoryPodcast.com.